Well, I hope you all know that the book of Romans is, is not about uh, Calvinism. It's not about the five points of Calvinism, although there's some of those things that are there. I heard something on the radio this morning that if an argument between two people takes more than five minutes, both parties are wrong. And I think that's uh, what often happens when you get into talking about some of these difficult doctrines. And Paul does allude to these in this passage. And we are admonished, even in our own Westminster Confession of Faith, to treat this topic gently because it is difficult to get our heads around. What you're talking about and what Paul is pressing for is for us as the church to have a very robust view of God's sovereignty, His power, His greatness, His rule over the, the world and all that is in it and the heavens above and the earth beneath. As we pray, there's no one like Him. He alone is God. And so there's this sense in which we are to regard God as incomprehensible. In other words, you cannot get your arms all the way around him. No one can in no way. But we can apprehend him. Apprehension means we can come to him and we can clutch on to what we can know as human beings, as creatures, and with all our might and all our willpower and all that is in us, trust him. And that means you just trust him. It's not that hard. It's a decision. And if you are someone like me, sometimes I think, well, I don't have enough faith or my faith is weak or I need more faith or whatever. Please come and talk to Dawson or myself because what you're struggling with is very common. It's common to human beings. And so we've talked a lot about what faith is. And I've said to you, and I, I hope you will take this in as the way it is meant, faith is just a decision that a human being makes to trust something, anything, someone, anyone. But you're giving your trust. You're trusting. And that's what Paul is pushing us towards. He's saying, look, you can't be right with God unless you trust Him. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one who came and lived a perfect life for us, who made, in chapter 3, Paul talks about propitiation. He makes a sacrifice for us that is sufficient for all human beings. Anyone who will come, anyone who will lay down their sins and repent, God will accept them. At the same time, Paul starts talking about the need for God's uh, a priori, before anything else, God's action in our lives. And I think this is what uh, can cause us a lot of stress and strain. Let's read this passage. It's in your bulletin, or if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to look at those. If you want a Bible, if you don't have one, we've got a, a bunch of them, a good translation, the ESV uh, it's back here somewhere on a cart. I'm not sure exactly, but if you see it, there's hymnals and there's Bibles. And you're welcome to take one if you want. And you need, you know, I have a hymnal at home, and sometimes when I'm doing my personal worship, I will open the hymnal uh, and use that. Sometimes I just use the bulletin from church. I have a stack of them. And I just go through the bulletin 
for my personal worship in the morning. Easiest thing in the world. And uh, wherever you want, you put in some personal petitions. But there's a, that won't cost you any extra today. It's just something that might help. Uh, so let's read this passage. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to join with him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from, the, from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is a very beloved passage of Scripture. If God is for us, who can be against us? He uses all things in our life in order to uh, bring us to glory, even evil, bad things. He will redeem. And what Paul is saying, that God is good, and he means good for his people. He doesn't create bad things and then use them in our lives as some sort of uh, teaching. We don't, one of the things that, that uh, can be harmful is when you're suffering, when you're going through periods of intense suffering in your heart, in your mind, whatever it is, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, but whatever it is, it is not helpful for other Christians to come and say these words. What is God teaching you? Now, we've all done that. I've done that as a pastor. Well, what God teaching you? 
Of course He's teaching you stuff, but you cannot have a relationship with Jesus Christ and God our Father and the Holy Spirit in a classroom. That is not what He's talking about. He's talking about coming and living in my house with me, adoption, being one of my very own, whom I love. I love with a love that is inexpressible in any language, in any human way. If we had eternity to explain God's love for His people, we couldn't do it. That's what eternity is. It's, it's the people of God worshiping Him because He is who He is and what He has done, His Son, Jesus, for us, as us. A perfect life, a death He did not deserve that we do deserve. And a resurrection that breaks the chains of death and takes away the fear of death so that we can live free as free people, free from the shackles of sin, just like Adam and Eve were. What St. Augustine said, possible not to sin. He restores to us our will, our freedom. So, we know, look at verse 28, we know with absolute knowledge that for those who are loving God, for those who are called ones according to His purpose, all things work together resulting in good. Paul is not saying that bad things are good or even good for you. What he is saying is that God is good and He means good for His children and He will take whatever happens to us, good or bad, and will in some way redeem that so that in glory, even what was meant for our ill is actually reversed. And how does He do that? He does it in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. Think about that the greatest reversal in cosmic history. The problem is that even though Jesus has done all these things, we are not yet resurrected. This is what he's talking about starting in chapter 5 and 6 and 7, is that even though the penalty for sin has been broken, has been paid for, our guilt is gone, our shame is taken upon him on the cross in his nakedness, our shame is delivered from us. We are no longer under the power of sin. It has no claim on us. Now the power of Holy Spirit is on us. And we are able to say no to sin and fight the good fight of faith as long as we live in this life. And then chapter 7, he says, but you know, the presence of sin is still there. And you are going to have to live in that tension because I want you to stay here, but I'll be with you I won't leave you. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And then he comes to chapter 8. Because we're suffering, because life is difficult, and I don't know, everybody in this room, unless you're, you're you know, very super young, some of our little guys, they don't know what suffering is yet, uh, at least not on, on, a, on a pathological or, or a level. They, they suffer in their own little ways, but it's not like as you grow older, you begin to suffer and you don't know what's going on. Why am I suffering? What is that suffering? Well, Paul explains it. It's this 
persecution and nakedness and destitution, these things that are out there that afflict everyone. So there's a cosmic tension that we live in. I've told you this, gosh, for as long as I've been here in El Paso at this church, the already and not yet. This is one of the things, the theological categories that, that you have got to get and put down in your heart. You won't, Christianity won't make any sense. It just won't unless you embrace the already, not yet. Easy to remember. Jesus has already done this, but we are not yet glorified. We're not yet at that place. There's a space, a lifetime to live in faith with our Savior, holding on to Him. And as paltry as our faith may be, it doesn't matter. The object of our faith is great. And so if even the tiniest bit of our faith we put in Him, it's enough. It's enough. And you don't have to struggle with having more faith. What do you need? You don't need more faith. What do you need more of? You need more of Jesus Christ in your life. You need more of the gospel in your life that is described in this Bible. You need more of Him. And He's not hard to get. Everybody's got them. I've got so many Bibles, I'm ashamed. Not really. I love them all. But there's going to be a heavy judgment on me. <laughs> I've got so many of them. And I obey so little of it. And I know that's one of our struggles, isn't it? I say, gosh, I know all these things. How come I can't do them? What's wrong with me? Paul talks about it in Romans 7. I can't do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do. And back and forth you go... And that's tension. And great men, great scholars, great women teachers, all of them have told us over and over again, that's a good sign that you're struggling. That means you're in the fight. That means sin actually means something to you. So you don't recoil from that. You recoil from your sin and run to Jesus. You go and embrace Him and get more of Him. That's why we have Holy Communion every week. For goodness sakes, we come here to get more of Him in this symbolic and representational and sacramental moment where we actually taste and see that the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. And the little bite of bread and the little little sip of wine is a foretaste of that glory He talks about that is coming. So let's go through three, three, three things. I want to do this quickly today, and I hope that, that in the next few weeks we can move on to chapter 9. The, chapter 8 is sort of a, uh, a conclusion, but it's also an introduction for the rest of the book. And so look at verse 29. He's talking about God having a purpose in our election. In other words, there's a reason why he's doing all this. And we need to be very cognizant of that reason. Why is he doing this? Why was there a fall? Why did mankind turn his back on God? Why did God go through the trouble of redeeming Adam and Eve and setting in place a redemption that would last throughout eternity? What was he doing? And his purpose... In verse 29, to exalt the preeminence of His Son. 
to reveal something about himself that explains him fully, and that was his son Jesus. You want to know God? Do you really want? People say, oh, I would like to know God. You want to know God? You're going to have to get to know Jesus Christ. Because without knowing Jesus, all you know is that God is some sparkling light up there, and you, you know, some ethereal thing that you can't get your hands on, you can't touch Him. You can't see Him. You can't feel Him. And so in order to deal with our sinful selves and our bodies where we are now, I will become like you. I will become you. I'll come down and be born in poverty and and shame and the shame of having a, 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 a dark cloud over His paternity. Who's his father really? To grow up in a shameful place. All of that. He became as us so he could die for us, live in us, and free us from death, the death of sin. It's magnificent. Then we're going to look real quickly at God's people. And finally, that's in verse 30. God's protection. We already looked at all this last week, but we're looking at it from a different angle uh, because of suffering. And then finally, God's love. You see, in, in verse, if, if you have your Bible, it, you can look at it. If you don't, just let me read it to you here. He talks about this in verse 18 of this chapter. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There's the already, not yet. And he's saying something about our suffering. That there is purpose. That we are His people. And he's saying it in a way that we can... You can throw your anchors down into the depths of this soil, this what we call the doctrine of election. You can put your anchor down in that soil when all the storms of life are whipping you around like a little boat in a hurricane and you're just being whipped all over the place because of the world you're living in. Your anchor is down deep in that soil and you cannot be, it cannot be cut loose. Why? Because it's all in His hand, not any part in our hands. And I know that's hard to get around, your your head to get around, but we'll look at that. God's people, God's protection, and finally God's love. So let's go through them quickly. God's purpose. Look, God knew His people in advance. This is what uh, some texts call foreknowledge. It's uh, prognostico, prognostico. Prognostication. Prognosco is how it's pronounced. It's foreknowledge. And it means simply to know ahead of time. Now when it's used in the Bible, when it's talking about men, it's saying when men have foreknowledge, it's that they know something that is coming in the future. It's never, never used that way when it's spoken of by God. It's not as if God is looking ahead and seeing something that we're going to do and then make a decision on that based on what he sees in the future. That's not God's foreknowledge. Now, man's foreknowledge, yes, but 
when it's talking about God's foreknowledge, it's not talking about that he knows about something, but that he knows it. And when God knows something, it is. He doesn't know stuff that's nothing. All right, he knows all things, yes. But what he's saying is that substantially he knows you intimately. He delights in you. Foreknowledge could be said to be foreloved. He foreloved you. He set his love on you before anything else, even before all creation. Now, we seem to think that God is up there and just indiscriminately going, uh, I'll take this one and this one no and this one yes and this one no. And he's throwing some people out and he's taking some people in and it's arbitrary and, and we don't know what's going on and my goodness, it's not fair and on and on and on. That is not the purpose of this passage. He chooses, it says. He predestines. This word is predestinate. He foreordains. This means he determines, he appoints, he decides. He decides ahead of time who he's going to save. And the purpose? So that we can become like his son, conform to the image of his son, so his son could be the firstborn among many Brothers and sisters, the translation in the NLT is good there because it's Adelphoi, and Adelphoi is a term that meant men and women, y'all. Listen to what Dr. Hendrickson said about this. It blows my mind. The exalted Savior, Jesus, doesn't consider himself complete apart from those he came to save. Can you imagine that? What a statement. He doesn't consider himself complete without us. He came to save us, to rescue us, and he didn't come just to throw a blanket out there and say, well, save yourselves. Uh, Go ahead and save yourselves. Uh, Make a decision for me. No, he says, I came to save you and I will save you. I will absolutely save you. I will secure you to myself in such a way that nothing can tear you away from me. Now, the first response of people, and look, I did this. When I first started learning this stuff, I thought, this is crazy. Our first response is to say, well, gosh, that's that's unfair. What about all these other people? And folks... What that means is you just don't know your own sin yet. You don't realize your own desperate need that you would immediately turn and start worrying about somebody else's bad doing. And don't we do that all the time? We're always comparing ourselves with others. Oh, I'm, I'm not as bad as this one. I'm better than that. Well, I may, be better, I may be worse than this one, but I'm not as bad as that one. We're always doing that. And what Paul is saying very simply, is that he's not considering any of that. God is sovereignly making a choice of who he's going to save, and he's choosing not based on them, but based on him. His love, his decision, his merit, his purpose. When that takes hold of your heart, 
you quit worrying about other people's sins and the destiny of all the other people out in the world and you start to see the majesty and the glory of your salvation, of what He has done for you. And that opens up your heart. If it's not opening your heart up, then you don't understand Paul's doctrine of election. You just don't. It should start opening our hearts in such a way that we see everyone like we see ourselves. They need it too. i got to get out there and I have to work to make this world a better place. I have to plead for people to choose Him, to decide for Him. I don't know who they are. I don't know what's going on, but He chose me. How could He choose me? That chosenness should open us up. And like I told you, we're, we're, we're chosen, but we're not choice. We're the weakest, the least, the last, and the lost. Somebody that understands the doctrine of election, their heart will break for the lost world. Hyper-Calvinism, or hyper, and he, he agrees. Look, just watch his little head go. Hyper-Calvinism, saying, well, it doesn't matter. If God's going to save them, He'll save them. And, you know, it doesn't matter. No, you are the means to that salvation. And both things are true. We must choose. And when we do, we're using our free will. We're using our faith. He doesn't cause faith. He doesn't, He gives you faith. It's a gift, but that's another, that's a whole other thing. But the faith is yours. It's your faith, your decision, your action to reach out and choose Him. How that happens is mysterious. And I could explain it to you, but we're not going to get into that right now. But notice that His purpose is to create a new humanity that Jesus is the firstborn or the preeminent exalted one among that company. It's not a classroom, folks. It's not a corral where he, he brings all his sheep in or brings all his cattle in and you're all my cattle. No, it's a home, a house, a mansion where Jesus has made room. I, I don't know if he's made rooms. You know, it's room can also be, it, rooms can be translated room. He's made room for you. He knows you're coming and He's made room for us in His heavenly kingdom. Look at verse 30. God's people. He's creating a new humanity. And this is what we call the chain of salvation or the ordo salutis and uh, the order of salvation. And some reformers, in trying to help people understand this, would say that logically, in the logic of God's mind, some things have to happen first. Chronologically, even R.C. Sproul's is chronologically, they happen at the same time. But logically, in God's mind, there, which you cannot fathom, okay, just settle that. You can't fathom what's going on in God's mind. But here he's, he's coming down low and he's trying to explain it to us. And he uses a literary device. I couldn't really... I can't even pronounce the way the literary device. I think it's sort of T or something like that. It's a French word, I, I believe, and who knows what it. Ha- but anyway, it's a it's a literary device where it uses connective 
words like and and but and those kind of connective words like connective tissue to build something together and he does it in a poetic way that is just magnificent. Look at the verses. And, this is one of those words, and having chosen. This is a word pro orizo and it means predestined or foreordained. Having chosen. Something happened in God's mind and he made a choice. He called. When he called, this is not simply an invitation. It is effectual. In other words, it's effective. That call is going to actually hit on ears that will hear. Why do they hear? Because he makes it possible for them to hear. So he's setting forth his word. He's saying, come to me. And it's falling on ears that hear. Jesus said, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. He called. How do we know it's effective? Look at the next part of the verse. And having called, he gave right standing with himself. You see, the calling itself has in it regenerative power. All right? And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. That's present tense. He does it now. He starts. He has deposited this glory in you. And now he's going to begin building out that glory in your lives. Little by little. Brick by brick. Stone by stone. Your past, even before you knew Jesus, he's going to reach back in that past and bring it up to the present. Your future secure, you're present, you're trusting Him. And at all points, from the time of your birth, even before, if you're going to believe the Scriptures, even before you were born, He's foreordaining things. He's going to take every part of your life, even the bad stuff, and He's going to build a structure, a connective tissue, if you will, a person who fits perfectly into the body of His Son, Folks, we're way up in the stratosphere right now. I mean, really, think about We're way up in the stratosphere talking about these things. And here I am with my little words and my little mouth trying to explain it. But we're way up there in the stratosphere that he's taking us and connecting us slowly like he knits a baby in its mother's womb. He's taking every single part and he's putting it together to plant it inside his son's body. Not literally, don't get crazy with it. It's majestic. He's recreating humanity. He's going back to Genesis chapter 3. And he and his son crushing the serpent's head. The seed of the woman. Seed, as Paul says, not plural, not as many, but seed as one. A single seed. This seed crushes the head of the the, And he says how it's done. Rather than look at it as a line, and he does this, and then he does this, and then he does this, here's a suggestion. Look at it as him being in the center, and out here all the spokes of what he does. We're not included in here. To say that we're somehow involved in this majestic uh, verse 30 of chapter 8 is like crazy. 
every word. And having chosen, he called, he gave, he gave rights, he gave glory, he has given, he is the center of this, not us. And when that hits you, folks, your heart will melt for the lost. So what can I do to reach lost people? How can I reach people? What about me? You become more aware of your own weakness and neediness. and You become very humble, not proud. Look at God's protection. This is in verse 31 through 35. This is what Dr. Hendrickson calls super invincibility. God is saying to you and I that in your suffering, in the trials that you have in your life, nothing can touch you. And we talked about these five questions last week. I'm not going to go through all that again. But he asked this first question, what shall we say about such wonderful things as this? What he's just said about God entering time and space and making certain that Jesus would have a family. Absolute certainty. What shall we say to this, Paul says? If God is for us, who can be against us? Won't God also, with Jesus, graciously give us everything? Of course. He didn't even spare His Son. He gave you everything, and everything else comes after everything. Yes? He gave you everything. He gave you His Son. So everything else comes after that. It's enormous. I don't know how we, I don't know how we breathe up there in that atmosphere when we're reading these things. Who dares to accuse us whom God has chosen? You see, God is at the center of everything in this verse. No one, God Himself has given us. Who will condemn? No one. Christ died. Christ was raised. He's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Trouble, calamity, persecution, hunger, destitution, danger, death. Then he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. We're killed. He's quoting a scripture to show you that this is the already, not yet. This is what we live in right now. And it's okay. Because He won't forsake us. He won't leave us. He's there. Can anything ever separate us? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Look at the first part of the verse. He says, if God, God did not spare him, God loved us. And at the end, he says, God, Christ loved us. It's magnificent. Every verse, every verse in, in this, verse 30, has God's scandalous Unbreakable, invincible, what Hendrickson calls invincibility. His love for you, folks, is a, a kind of love that is furious, jealous in a good way. In other words, he's looking at you as his own, 
that he made, that he went out and found, that he brought to himself a chosen race, a holy priesthood. You are people that are beloved beyond compare. Let's look finally at God's love. Look at 38 through 39, this section. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And he goes through another litany now. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, our fears for today, our worries for tomorrow. No power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the earth below or the sky above can separate us. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of kinds of suffering. I'll end just being, I I don't need this. You know what suffering is. Suffering can take a lot of forms. You can get a bad report from a doctor. You can have struggles and strife in your marriage and it looks like it's going to fly apart. You can have kids who have gone off the rails and after a lifetime of pouring your life into them for some crazy reason, they go off in some nutty direction. You can even lose your children, God forbid. You can lose your career, your money, your future. I mean, the stock market has, has scared everybody to death because it's dropped down, I don't know, whatever it is. Your health, doesn't matter. Anything can cause suffering. But Paul doesn't mention a lot of those. What he mentions is suffering for Jesus. And in our context, in America, in the West, we have so much... And persecution is very light. Sure, there are sometimes people are persecuted for their Christianity. You know, that something, uh, you know, rarely will somebody get fired from a job. But, you know, they may snob people that are Christians or not invite them to happy hour, whatever. But he's talking about suffering. And so how do we suffer in our context here in the West and everywhere else? How about forgiving people? If you're going to forgive anyone, you're going to suffer. How about loving somebody? If you're going to love someone, you're going to suffer. Do you see where I'm going? Do you see what I'm talking about? Anything. The the closer you are to Jesus, the more you're going to see your own sin weakness and neediness. You're going to see it in others. But back there, in the back of your mind, is this thought, or it should be, He has brought me out of this pit so that I can forgive, so that I can love the unlovable, so that I can forgive the unforgivable, even if they don't repent. I can forgive anyone. I can love people. I can suffer when people say things that I don't agree with. I'll keep my mouth shut. Now that's hard for me. I, I know what I'm talking about. 
It's painful. But these are the ways that people have been asked to suffer for Jesus, even when it's not that you don't have enough to eat or you're poor. Do you understand? He's telling you something that is so solid that it will never, ever let you go. Spurgeon said, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I never should have chosen him. And he must have chosen me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me. For I never could find a reason in myself why he should have bestowed upon me this special love. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, we love you and thank you. We don't even begin to know why you've done what you've done other than to create a new humanity that is going to be exactly like your son, an icon, an image of your son that can represent, that can glow with glory and light and goodness and peace and harmony and forgiveness that the world has never seen and we've fallen short and we beg you, Father, to renew these hearts of stone. Give us hearts of flesh. Let us turn the other cheek. Give the extra mile. Take the coat off our back and give it if it's necessary. Help us to do that, Father, in whatever way we need to. And I pray that you will hear our prayers. Listen to our cries for mercy. Amen.